0: Well, we're glad you're with us. This is what we call pastors, chat, and uh, we haven't been exactly faithful to post it every month at the same time, but we've all repented, and we're going to fix it so you can count on a time. And when we come back next month, we're going to be talking about politics in the church, a series that we've been talking about on a number of programs, and we're going to talk about, I think, the appropriate and inappropriate use of humor in your preaching and in your ministry. But at any rate, this time we have a great guest with us. He's been on, uh, on our regular talk show, I think, two or three times, and each time he's been a delight. It's Dr. Jared Wilson. He, as I said, has been our guest before, and Jared serves as director of content strategy at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I have no idea what that is, but we'll ask him to explain. He's also the managing editor for the church and director of the pastoral training center at Liberty Baptist Church. His latest book, uh, which I hold in my nicotine-stained fingers, and you can get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Is the gospel-driven church uniting church growth dreams with the metrics of grace? And by the way, if you want to know something about Jared, you can go to Jared C. Wilson dot com. That's Jared C. Wilson dot com. And sitting at our table, and you have a place also, is Kevin Labby. And Kevin is my pastor at the Willow Creek Presbyterian Church. And then if he doesn't treat me right, to my right is Jerry Perry's. The Christian Family Worship Center is his church. And it's right down the street from our church, So if Kevin says something that offends me or the elders do something that make me angry, then I'm coming down to your church, man. And when you do it, I'm going back to the, (laughs) listen, it's not, it's, it's not bad. And by the way, my name is Steve Brown and I'm the old white guy. Jared, thanks for taking your time to be with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me again, Steve. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys.
0: Now, listen, before we talk about your book, what is a director of content strategy?
1: You know, I haven't figured that out yet. Uh, <laughs> but they keep paying you. What's, well, what's wonderful about it is if nobody knows, they don't know if I'm doing it poorly. <laughs> that's right.
0: That's what, that's what Jesus meant about being innocent as a dove and as wise as a serpent. Listen, I've been looking over this book. I really like it. I think this is almost like fresh air. Did you mm. did you just get it up to your ears with all of the church growth? Let's put on a show. Let's make this thing happen. Bring in folks from everywhere and then brag about it at the denominational headquarters. Did you just get tired of it and decide to say something?
1: Yeah, and, and I also came out of that environment having ministered in it for a long time as well. So, you know, really the book is kind of the culmination of um, almost a repentance tour. <laughs> <And that's it. laughs>
0: you know, as I read some of it this morning, I was going through a bit of repentance myself. Uh, you're so right on. Jerry, you were saying that you kind of there too.
2: Yeah, uh, and my church, uh, I come from a Pentecostal background. And and I had just decided in the last three years to just uh, really focus on the gospel and not uh, people in the pews, but souls, mm-hmm. you know, souls. And if they come to our church, fine. If they don't, let's get them saved and let's talk about Jesus, you know. And I and for a minute, um, um, it went the opposite way. I had been, <laughs> <laughs> I made a horrible mistake. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I was thinking, you know. Um, it and, can happen. Yeah, uh, people with you know you. I would have people come up. Uh, We're gonna have another grace sermon again. You know, it was like, well, that <laughs> is the gospel. What are you talking about? You know. Good. So yeah, it was that kind of thing. Jared,
0: describe the problem and then talk a little bit about what your book says that we ought to repent of and the direction in which we should go.
1: Yeah. The. The problem, if I could sum it up, uh, arises from a kind of pragmatism related to the way a lot of churches do ministry, Um, and it it has a sincere motivation, which is to reach as many people as possible, um, in a sense to attract as many people as possible. But when that becomes your aim, um, it becomes very easy. The temptation becomes very deceptive to sort of shave off some of the rough edges uh, to save the gospel for special occasions, because we discover that the gospel very uh, can just as easily repel or divide as it can, um, you know, attract and and what have you. So, in order to, you know, to fill the rooms up or to get as many people as possible or to have the, you know, the appearance of a successful ministry, we end up doing some really um, sometimes silly things, but also just things that um, you know aren't what the Bible calls us to do, and so. My book is really an aim at kind of reorienting the church around the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, around the message of grace, Um, because I really do believe the Bible teaches that, you know, beholding the glory of Christ is not just how lost people get saved, but how uh, saved people grow. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm just calling people to uh, make the gospel the center of their ministry and let the cards fall where they may. Some people will see a lot of numeric growth, and some people won't, but the only way to spiritual health is, is through the gospel.
0: Whoa. Uh, is this a big leap for guys? And I'm, I'm sure, although the book is new, that you've shared a lot of this material with students and with others. How do people react to it?
1: Yeah, I think um, to a large extent, actually, there's somewhat of a generational divide in that a lot of the younger generation is really craving this. Um, some of the older uh, generation um, is not so much sold on it because, you know, we're kind of weaned on the church growth movement and some of those, you know, the the pragmatic practices that came out of that, whether it was sort of revivalistic, um, you know, type church services or, or or ministries of the, you know, late '60s through early '80s, or the sort of seeker-sensitive movement from you know, the early 80s into the 90s. Um, yeah, w- what I'm discovering is that um, younger ministers and aspiring ministers uh, take to the message right away because they're kind of burnt out on the performance-driven stuff and the, really, it's it's a shiny kind of legalism. I think there's a misnomer about when we went positive and started giving people five things to do, we assumed that we weren't being as legalistic as the old, you know, hellfire and brimstone uh, you know, don't do stuff, but do is just the opposite side of the, of the legal coin. And, you know, what I'm trying to encourage pastors to do is center the message around the done of the gospel, that the work of, of grace is accomplished in Christ.
0: You know, there has been a major culture shift, you know, the old guys used to call it post modernity, but there's really been some, some changes And we've mostly been negative about it. But as a matter of fact, there's a positive side to that. Uh, Slickness will kill you today. I have some friends in a church where I preach often that's a mega church. And and, uh, they have meetings on how not to be slick. So it's planned (laughs) unslickness. And I tell them that's not the way you do it, man. But they... They see the problem, which is something, or at least has the flavor of what you were talking about with the younger generation, that it's not so important that there be five things you do, that the music fit, that everybody be perfect, that the best singers be up front. And we've done some of that at our church. And and it's been um, amazing the reaction that happens to those uh, younger people when they see it, it's kind of authentic and it's kind yeah. of real and it's kind of Jesus, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, and what a lot of pastors of, of my generation did with the authentic thing, you know, so I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. You don't hear too many, uh, too much about them anymore. And it's mainly because we contributed nothing of worth. <laughs> to, <laughs> to <the church>. Uh, <laughs> uh w- we contributed the, uh, the emerging church, which kind of emerged in thin air, right? But we, we took, we took that uh, that desire for authenticity and we made it a style, right? So we have an authentic style, which is somewhat redundant. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what You know, millennials and, and Gen Z, what they're actually longing for is actual real yeah. uh, community, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah. I, um, <laughs> I love what you said about Gen X. I, I'm a fellow Gen Xer and I could not agree more. Uh, you talk in your book about metrics of, you know, grace, kind of how you measure – where a congregation truly is, and traditionally, you know, the metrics are numbers and budgets and, you know, bodies, that sort of thing. What are the metrics that you're talking about in your book and how, I I guess, you know, as a Gen X pastor coming into a church that kind of has generations uh, beyond me and before me, um, uh, you know, how does that come into bear in terms of shepherding that congregation toward a new view of what ministerial success and fruitfulness looks like?
1: Yeah, you know, what's tricky, um, what I call the metrics of grace in the book are are really drawn from uh Jonathan Edwards, distinguishing marks of a move of the Spirit of God. And he begins his list uh in that work with some neutral signs, so things that um you know tell us something but don't tell us everything. And those include things uh like decisions and uh, emotional responses and, and that sort of thing. Things that aren't, aren't bad, but don't tell us, you know, the deepest, uh, most important things about the health of a church. So the five metrics of grace that I um, talk about in the book come from his distinguishing marks, which are essentially uh, a growing esteem for Jesus Christ, uh, a discernible spirit of repentance, a devotion to the scriptures, um, an interest in theology and doctrine, and then an evident love for God and for neighbor. And the problem is those things are really difficult to measure. They're more yeah. dispositions than they are things that you can count. So I do offer some you know some practical um things, some things you can count that go a little deeper than simply you know how many people are showing up, you know, for instance of 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 new believers that are being baptized, how many of them are still uh, in the church or walking with Christ uh, a year, two years, three years later. Uh, percentages I think sometimes tell us more than raw numbers, percentage of uh, attendees who are involved in community groups or small groups Mm -hmm. or uh, community service, those sorts of things. Those um, require more work and, uh, you know, more intensive sort of investigation, but they tell us more important things than simply how many people are filling the room and how many dollars were put in the plate, I think.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, that's really helpful, and it also, I I I guess what comes through to me when you're describing that is it requires a form of shepherding that is much more intimate than oftentimes if you're running a program or a, you know, a performance-oriented ministry. Yeah. 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 Uh,
2: Jared, this is uh, Jerry. Uh, Similar names. (laughs) 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 Um, When, when you mentioned about the attractional church um, and can can you kind of explain what that, Really means um, for churches
1: yeah so the the attractional um, paradigm is really uh oriented around as it sounds attracting people to uh to the church to a church service primarily um so uh, you know i I distinguish a, attractional from uh you know simply being welcoming or hospitable that sort of thing. But essentially orienting your programming around attracting as many people um, as possible. And so the attractional paradigm typically involves a level of uh, pragmatism in ministry, also consumerism. How do we appeal um, you know, to to certain customers that we might have or certain uh, demographics that we're trying to attract? Uh, those sorts of things. One thing I try to do, I take great pains to do in the book actually, is distinguish, um, uh, attractional from a particular church size. Like a lot of people think I'm, you know, that it's a critique of, of mega churches in general, but there's all kinds of mega churches, just like there's all kinds of small and medium sized churches. So it's not about the size of the church, mm. uh, but about it's, it's paradigm for ministry. And one thing I talk about in the book is that there are some churches that are traditional in their style and yet are attractional because they've, Determine that a traditional style is what attracts you know the people in you know in their areas right so you can have an attractional church that does you know has a choir and organ and all those sorts of things and it's not simply about the church that has you know the fog and lasers and the rock band and, and and all that sort of thing
0: that's a good point as you begin um talking about these kinds of things the flesh kicks in from pastors you know, this requires a pretty big leap on the part of a pastor. who has been doing it the other way. Do you advocate yeah. he stand in the pulpit and repent publicly or he ease into it or he fixes it incrementally or he makes an obscene gesture and leaves? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> well, probably all but the last one. <laughs> One of the things I was really burdened by, uh, because I wrote a book a few years ago called The Prodigal Church, and it is largely a critique of the attractional paradigm. Chapter by chapter, it's essentially, uh, I try to do it as gentle and as winsome as I could, uh, writing as if I'm sitting across, you know, sort of the table from someone having a cup of coffee, trying to, you know, ask them, hey, consider this, think about that. What do you know about this research? That sort of thing. But there was really only one chapter in that book that sort of, you know, positioned, okay, then what? What's the what's the way forward? And so I was burdened about not giving uh, ministry leaders interested in making that transition real practical help on how mm-hmm. to do that. And in the last several years, I've been able to uh, do some consulting, uh, do, you know, uh, uh, church staff training days, things like that. And I've been, you know, uh, developing friendships with pastors who are making these transitions. And so this book really has that, it has a measure of critique in it, but it's really for the pastor. Okay, I want to do this. I do want to repurpose my church around the gospel. How do I do it without blowing my church up? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really is like messing with the DNA of a church that if it's been established in a particular way for a while. So I offer a lot of practical help. I talk about the strategies of timing, um, what things you can change quickly, what things you probably shouldn't change quickly. And a lot of it depends on the size of a church, the demographic of a church, that sort of thing. But uh, I really do try to, you know, to uh, shepherd shepherds as they sort of process a transition like this and doing it in as um, because it's a disruptive thing. But to do it in as patient and as pastoral a way as possible.
0: You know, you're an illustration of how that can be done, too. One of the things I've noticed about you when you've been on our regular talk show. And also I see it again is that I don't get an angry, self-righteous critique where you're Mm -hmm. beating people over the head, making them feel guilty and forcing them into the kingdom. There's a gentleness about you that is really not judgmental. In fact, I don't even know if I'd use the word critique. It doesn't Mm -hmm. smell like that. It smells like I'm here to help. And maybe that which personifies you uh, would be an illustration for a pastor in making these kinds of changes that take place in his or her church.
1: Well, I really appreciate that. A part of it just comes from acknowledging um, that pastors who do their churches, you know, a way even that I would disagree with, um, have, you know, the sincere motivation. They want lost people to know Jesus. There's not a greater motivation than that. Um, another part of it is just that I was in this world for. Um, you know, over a decade, uh, I was trained for ministry in in kind of the seeker church, uh, you know, way of doing things. And, you know, I think about myself then, how would I have responded to someone who did come to me angrily and, um, you know, denouncing and, yeah. and not sort of asking questions or, or, you know, patiently helping. And the other thing too is, you know, acknowledging that when pastors are, are wanting to, you know, make a transition like this, they have to get their their team on board, the other elders, or what have you, and you know it it doesn't behoove us to to be impatient that somebody is not where we, uh, you know, um, you know, people are where we were a year ago or two years ago or what have you, yeah, <laughs> and and so it, you know it's just all about timing in that sense. So there's no sense of being impatient with people or, or getting angry with them. So yeah, um, yeah I, I I do hope that comes across
0: in the book. Yes. And it comes across in you. One of the things I've said to students for years is don't change anything until they know you love them. And don't change anything until you've earned the right to make those changes. And don't change anything until you've got chips that you've earned (laughs) by burying and marrying and baptizing and sitting all night with a drunk, with the DTs, every time you do that, you get a vote. And every yeah. time you do that, when you make the changes, they vote for you rather than
2: against you. How, how, yeah. in, in your experience uh, with pastors and churches um, who want to take this method and really change um, the direction of the church, um, how, how, how long does it? take, or or, or what are some of your experiences in success in making that happen?
1: Yeah, you know, in terms of uh, the timing or the success, it usually—and what I've noticed is that smaller churches and younger churches tend to change more quickly or mm-hmm. have more success in changing more quickly. Um, churches that are older or larger take more time. Um there's more at stake. So I have a couple of friends who have, you know, multiple thousand uh, attendee churches who have been, you know, working at this transition. They've been, inha- uh, you know, inherited kind of the attractional model um, from their predecessor and they didn't, you know, drop in and suddenly start changing everything. But even taking five, six, seven years, uh, they begin to see people leave and that can, cause a lot of panic and especially in, in, well, in any size church, but when you have a large church and you've got to start thinking through, you know, how does this impact being able to, you know, uh, to pay staff or we've got buildings that we're, you know, trying to, you know, cover utilities on and all those sorts of things. And it just becomes uh, a lot more complex at at that level. So I I only know, I'm not saying it's, Know that there aren't more out there, but I only know of uh, of a couple of large churches that have uh, been making this transition, and the ones you know they they've done it somewhat successfully. Uh, one for the reason that Steve just sort of alluded to, which is that the pastor has been there from the very beginning, and so his change of heart, um, you know, kind of came alongside uh, a church that just knew him, um, you know, as the founding pastor, and he's been there twenty something years, and Amen. Hey man, you know, if, if you're going, we're going with you kind of thing. Um, and then the other fellow uh, inherited the church and he's just moving very, very slowly and incrementally. Um, and I think in a very pastoral way and he's seen, uh, you know, success as they go, but of course it, you know, it's, it hasn't come without complications.
2: Yeah. I, I wanted to just add to that, that um, I uh, am the founder of, of my small church and um, even in me, uh, going more into uh, the areas that you're saying, I saw a shift of people who just did not want to receive um, the gospel in that way. They were they were more um, traditional and and yep. and and so forth. And so, at the end of the day, it's really that sometimes when those people start leaving, and I just want to encourage a pastor that may be listening that when those people start leaving, you you have a tendency to want to shift back. To save right. them from leaving, um, but sometimes you got to just trust God and and push through and really just believe that uh, the gospel is what God is requiring us to teach and preach and and that it is up to god to 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 save that ministry and and fulfill his promise to you, so I just want Jared,
0: to this you. is a good place for you to talk about the three things that pastors <laughs> are going to need. I mean that would that yeah, how's that for a segue? <laughs> I was actually about to go there. <laughs> yeah, so I've dedicated a whole chapter, as you said, to the three
1: things you will need, which are uh, conviction, uh, courage, and commitment. Um, beginning with you know conviction, which is to say, you really have to believe this. You really have to believe that the gospel is, is it, you know is enough, that it is the power of salvation for all who believe. That, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that it is not just the power that we stand in, but it's the power that we are being saved by. So, therefore, the way people actually change, you know, want them to grow, become more mature, more holy, or what have you, the way they change is by beholding Christ. And it's so counterintuitive because we think it's that we just tell people to get their act together. <laughs> you know, yeah. we just crack the whip yeah. of the law over and over again. So you really need the conviction that this is not just the latest church fad. It's not just a new strategy to try. But I really believe this theologically, devotionally. So you you need to have that conviction, and then of course you need the the courage in the face of those who aren't going to see it your way. The courage to keep moving forward, even as people uh, drop away, and you need the commitment to
0: see it through. Oh man, yeah. that is so true. You know, though, you know, underneath all of this, though, Jared, and uh, and this may be being naive. I really believe that when people see the real thing and and uh, they respond to it. And I think also that a lot of people are sitting in church and saying, you know, I know I'm doing the right thing. I ought to be in church. My family ought to be here and I'm going to be doing. But something's not right. Something just doesn't fit. It doesn't come together. Yeah. And when they are offered the reality of what you've been talking about. uh uh, what the, the gospel by which we live, by which we're saved, and by which we'll get home. Luther said our sanctification is getting used to our justification. And uh, when they hear that and see it, they respond to that. Is that true?
1: Well, I think a lot of people do, but I think there are some who don't, right? Um, you know, I take an odd encouragement in the fact that even Jesus lost people you know, talking about himself, right? (laughs) So, you know, if if he wasn't too good to lose people, you know, by proclaiming the centrality of himself, then um, I I don't think we should, you know, see ourselves as above that um, either. But I I do think you're right. There are people who they're longing for this message and they don't know it. They're on some kind of treadmill of works-based religion and they don't understand why they feel somewhat burned out or stalled or what have you. Um, because it's, it's, it is it's it is different than sort of the stern, you know, hellfire, brimstone, you know, don't do this or God's going to be mad at you type stuff. It's all of this how to be a successful, you know, that, um, you know, five steps to victory over this. And so it has this air of positivity to it and optimism to it, but they don't identify it with legalism or, or works religion. But that's what it is fundamentally. Mm. So it, it erodes our soul. And we can't quite figure it out. And then someone comes and preaches
0: grace, unadulterated. And it is so refreshing to those whose hearts are are yearning for it. And the others get a bottle of champagne and celebrate when they leave. And if they're in (laughs) leadership, you've got to decide to be meaner than they are. And if you aren't, you're not going to survive. As you move in this direction and you teach about it, uh, and I'm assuming you're te- you're meeting with students at the seminary uh, on occasion. Is this is leadership the most important thing? How the pastor goes, the church goes. I mean, is are you talking to pastors because that's so very important? Um, I do agree with that. Yeah, a, a good friend of mine once told me that
1: whatever the elders are, whatever the pastors are, the church will become. Yeah. And, and I do believe that, um, you know, obviously there are people who won't follow, you know, no matter who their leader is, but I think over time, the kind of leadership, the kind of pastoral care that you have, and the kind of preaching that there is uh, certainly shapes the disposition and, and, and temperament of, of the church. So um, I even think it's true for those who sort of, you know, they affirm the idea of gospel centrality, and yet in their preaching, they haven't quite figured out how to, um, you know, make it mostly or all about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so their excitement is for the law, right? So I've even seen where their passion is, you know, most naturally comes out when they're exhorting people to do stuff. But then they want to say, oh, but also, you know, Jesus is, you know, is the real, you know, center and what have you. But people drift to where the passion is, not just simply what you're, you're saying is important, but the way you act. Huh. And, you know, how, how how you reflect what's important.
3: Hey, Jared, you had talked earlier about kind of changes in the way, you know, prevailing currents within the church, the 70s, the 80s, the seeker sensitive, you know, in the late 80s, the 90s. Um, where do you see the church headed now?
1: You know, that's sort of the uh, the million dollar question, isn't it? It's something that I ask uh, people who are a lot smarter than me. Um, I, I did a piece, um, a two part. At the Gospel Coalition last year about the attractional church, um, sort of pondering if if we're reaching a tipping point. Um, and so the first part was, you know, the you know, the attractional church is is heading towards collapse. And then the other part was, well, maybe not. <laughs> mm. And and so I'm somewhat divided in in that I do think that there is a uh, a waning interest in consi- in in consumer kind of, um, Christianity. Certainly we're seeing, uh, the erosion of cultural Christianity, even in the Bible belt and, and those areas. And yet, you know, Americans are, are as spiritual as they've ever been. Um, you know, there may be a a decline in kind of institutional religion, but spirituality is, is always of interest. We're becoming a more spiritual, Mm -hmm. uh, country, even if more irreligious. And so I think what may happen is, the sort of attractional uh, movement will become even less discernibly Christian. And I think we see some examples of that um, in different places, but um, I just, you know, we like our big box stores. We like entertainment and we like spirituality. And as long as we have those as Western values, um, I think it'll still be around. Hmm.
0: Well, and I think uh, I personally believe, and for Significant reasons. I think we're sitting on top of an awakening, and I don't I think it's—I so. don't think it's going to be like what we expect with an awakening. You know, we have come to think of an awakening with certain signs, and these all follow. I think it's going to be totally different. I can sense that in television programs and in film. With young people, they drive me nuts. I don't like their politics, and I certainly <laughs> don't like their music. But there is a reality there that is that just warms my heart. And as I travel around and listen, I think God's getting ready to do something, and he's going to tick off a lot of people when he does. Yeah, <laughs> I just hope I'm on the right side of this thing. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jared, I'm so glad you wrote this book, and I'm so glad you took your time to be with us. Um, and uh, by the time this is aired, Uh, The book will be in bookstores, and they certainly can get it from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And, Jared, I quote you often, and we rise up and call you blessed. Mm, Thank you so much, brother. Thank you so much. Bless you.